0: Welcome to the ITM podcast. ITM is the Institute of Travel Management, the UK business travel industry's not-for-profit membership association. And this episode is brought to you in partnership with Clarity Business Travel, our thanks to our friends at Clarity. So each time I'm joined by industry experts to enlighten and inform us on a subject matter that ITM's members need to know more about. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Lloyd, founding partner of Nina and Pinter, and Richard Tams, Tailwind Advisory. Hello. Hello. So, Joe, first of all, tell us, you've flown in especially to be on the podcast today, is that right? That's right. So, (laughs) tell us a bit about Nina and Pinto. What is the scope of your work and who do you work for?
1: Nina and Pinta is a consulting and a training organization. Our typical customers uh, on the consulting side of life are uh, corporate customers, corporate travel buyers, and we help them optimize anything related to their travel program. So, whether it's uh, RFPs, whether it's sourcing, uh, whether it's compliance, stakeholder management, policy management, etc., that's what we do. And the other side of our business is around training. So, it's around skills development and helping organizations to um, make the most usually within their their sales areas.
0: Great, and I've got a feeling we've known each other for about 18 years, something like that. Would that be right?
1: Might even be a bit longer. Longer than that, Maybe. it was a different world, <laughs>
0: and of course, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. And you left BA last year after, I believe, 28 years.
2: Uh, well, actually 27, but it, um, so yes, a long time. Am I rounding up? Is that uh, you're I'm rounding up, it? which is great because you know, it's a lot of experience, it's a lot of staff travel, it's, it's a th- lot of staff travel, <laughs> <laughs> and I should say, apologies for my voice, I've been to one too many festivals this summer, <laughs> and that's rubbish. But <laughs> no
0: So tell us, after BA, what have you been up to? I know you started Tailwind Advisory and what's the the purpose of that
2: business? Well, again, two facets to Tailwind. One is a consultancy providing mostly sales and marketing solutions to the travel sector, uh, particularly in relation to China. Uh, The second part of that is a coaching practice which specializes in cultural intelligence coaching, which we'll come to later, I think. I think we will.
0: So let's get straight into it, actually. So the main content of today's podcast is around the importance of cultural intelligence when doing business globally. And of course, you guys helped us put together a brilliant session on this at conference. So I'll start with you, Joe. What what do we mean by cultural intelligence?
1: So cultural intelligence, in its essence, is really about the capability to relate and work effectively across multiple cultures. So, you know, most of us in today's industry are either working with global teams, with uh, global TMC networks, uh, there's usually an aspect of uh, multiculture that we need to incorporate into our day-to-day jobs and it's really about having the skills to be able to orchestrate some of the challenges that come with that.
0: Okay, and of course, Richard, you spent uh, quite a bit of time in China. What are the specific challenges that come up with
2: cultural intelligence in that market? I spent th- three and a half years in China. Um, previously, I'd worked in other parts of the world as well, but it's not really till you get to, to China. And I guess before then, when I worked in, in South Korea, do you really sort of take cultural intelligence head on? Uh, and, and with China, the key to doing business in China is really doing the prep work. Whereas doing prep work in the UK may be a few pleasantries, the beginning of a phone call, the beginning of a meeting. Uh, in China, it can be years and years of building up a relationship, uh, what they call in China, building up guanxi. So uh, when I was in China, what I discovered very quickly is I wasn't going to get much done until I'd been there probably about 18 months uh, and had really established a working relationship with the commercial partners I wanted to deal with, but also the government as well. So it was a real, uh, yeah, it was a huge cultural change
0: change. So you say it takes some time to build those relationships to, to be able to do that level of business. How do you, how do you get going? How do you get started?
2: Well, it, it's pretty elementary in, in, in its real sense, because it's just about getting to know the person you're dealing with, finding out about them, building up a relationship and, and becoming familiar with them. And what the danger in China is that people try and do business or to call on uh, people to help or f- provide solutions when they don't have that basis of a relationship. Uh, so it's really just paying regular visits, I used to make sure that we would get at least five or six board members from BA or IAG through to basically build the political capital and and give face, as they say in China, to these senior people. Uh, And then uh, when you built that relationship, you could then start calling on that relationship to try and get stuff done. What the Chinese don't like and Chinese culture doesn't adapt to is people coming to you for favors uh, when you don't really know them. And that's the biggest mistake Western companies do. Okay, and I,
1: I, think, I think that's true. Sorry, Scott. But I think that's true in terms of all different cultures that you can work with, that we take our normal, we take our expectation and our way of doing business, and we apply it to other cultures that we're working with. And that is usually the basis of any jarring or challenges that you can have within those relationships that you take or that we take our expectations and apply them somewhere else.
2: And I think we, we talk about China as a very extreme case, but where some of the biggest mistakes are made are much closer to home. That's true. So there are people like me who moved to Sweden uh, for three years and imagine the Swedes would take a similar view of things that the Brits do. Uh, and even more so within Scandinavia, assuming that the Danes are the same as the Swedes or the same as the Finns. Uh, But also, people based in the UK who might be managing global teams, they're not in country, but they're dealing with these cultural sensitivities, and there can be some big mistakes to be made there as well.
1: They really can, and when you think about how you roll out different programs, so people will typically tend to roll things out in geographic clusters. Actually, it can make more sense sometimes to roll them out in culture clusters, because the way that you engage is going to be driven by the different culture clusters. And if you take Europe, for example, I think you're dealing with 27 different cultures, but very often it'll be, OK, now we're going to roll out Europe. And uh, things may not go the way that you're anticipating because one size does not fit all.
0: So you alluded to the fact it doesn't always go well, That mistakes are made. Well, what are the implications of making those kind of mistakes?
2: Well, I think in the extreme, you can cause offense and actually build a brick wall to doing business in a particular place. That's very much the extreme, but you can just make life more difficult for yourself. You can find yourself misunderstanding, taking the wrong signals from people's comments, um, just making things a lot more difficult. So when I talk to clients who are uh, wanting to do business in China or wanting to improve the way they do business in China, this idea of getting the prep done first and be patient and just let the relationship settle in, is one that's difficult to communicate because we're all working up against the clock and that, you know, putting somebody in country for 18 months, two years is a lot of money. But the dividends that can be made and the way that you can move things a lot quicker beyond that point um, are, are the real savings. So, you know, in extreme, you can you can make problems for yourself. At, at, at the best, you're, you're making your life more difficult and making things take a lot longer.
1: That's true. And if you think about something like rolling out a new... Um a new travel provider or a new travel policy, you can do a lot of work for very little return where, you know, there's just no change driven at all. And usually that's because, you know, the engagement isn't there. And that's because you haven't necessarily adapted that engagement to the culture that you're in.
0: Is there a bit more responsibility on the supplier to match and replicate culture if they're trying to do business with a potential
2: buyer? I think even outside of the cultural sphere, that's always a good thing. I mean, when we were all, and you and I, Scott, were taught how to sell, we were always encouraged to understand uh, the customer, to see where they're coming from, to get to know their family and their family background, all the things that are important to them. So if you then extend that to a whole culture, um, I would definitely say so. I think where it becomes more interesting is whether you actually try and match that culture, Mm. uh, where you run the risk of becoming a little bit of a fraud and getting it horribly wrong, or that you just respect and understand that culture and know how to work it Um, because otherwise you do run the risk of having everything done to the rules of the culture that you're dealing with uh, where it should hopefully be a bit more balanced and nuanced than that.
1: And, And that can turn itself into a bit of a caricature. So if you're trying to adapt to that culture and they're trying to adapt to your culture, you can imagine how that can very quickly devolve into the lowest common unsuccessful denominator. But I think, you know, for me, the key is exactly what Richard said. It's about knowledge, and it's about knowing where the differences are likely to be between your culture and the culture that you're dealing with, because that way you can anticipate where the potholes are likely to be and navigate your way around them.
0: It's so important, isn't it, to be authentic, because yeah. people can tell when you're just trying to do things for appearances.
1: Absolutely. You know, I... I told a story when we were at conference of uh, a friend of mine who's from New York. And she had a very cool artisan bakery down in Chelsea. There was a Japanese company that were interested in buying it. And so they sent uh, a fleet of uh, buyers over to come and check it out. And she greeted each one of them with a massive bear hug, (laughs) which on, you know, their first contact was slightly shocking (laughs) and probably violating (laughs) for the Japanese businessmen that encountered her. But by the end of the whole transaction, that's how they would greet her. And if she didn't hug them, then they'd be upset that they'd offended her in some way when she suddenly decided to try and dial it back and be culturally sensitive. They they suddenly felt, you know, quite upset if she didn't.
2: I think also even if you don't get it quite right, the person you're dealing with will respect the fact that you're trying. Right. So I made all sorts of slip-up in in China. In fact, the the, the funniest one was actually not when I was in China, but when I was in South Korea, when I was greeting a whole series of very senior ministers who were flying out on BA, I was the airport manager at the time, and I got the seniority wrong, so I bowed very deeply (laughs) to the uh, less senior, (laughs) and therefore, as a result, had to bow even deeper to the next four, which meant that by the time I got to the big boss himself, I was quite frankly on the floor doing
1: a yoga my pose my nose was
2: touching the pavement <laughs> uh, which was funny and funny to them as well but they understood that I was just trying to get it right and that goes a long way I think
1: I'm yeah. sure that was very endearing <laughs> yes it was, you, was my there, back's uh, not
0: been
2: the same ever since But
0: even a flourish on the
2: last one maybe just to embarrass them uh, well yes yes I, did, I Yes, um, uh, probably flourishes are not to be encouraged in South Korea but uh, uh, yes it, so you know uh, and I think even when I was in China attempts for me to speak Mandarin which I spent a lot of time doing with very little effect but you know Even just an attempt to to say hello and and how are you in in Chinese just goes down a very long way. It shows that that you're trying, you're giving face to them and you're trying to respect them. And that's what it's all about.
0: So we talk about cultural differences across geographies, but actually there can be quite dramatically different cultures between different companies in the same territories. How do you assess the way that different company cultures should be approached?
1: Well, I think it's just being cognizant of what the culture of that organization is. So anything that we do within our industry and within our business is is all around supporting the culture of an organization because there's different cultural levels. So, you know, you have the country culture, you have company culture and you have individualism, you know, which can't be underestimated either, the impact of an individual. With anything that we do, things like a travel policy, a travel policy needs to fit the company culture. The way that you engage with your stakeholders within that business need to reflect the company culture. So if you have a very relaxed, open, engaging, collaborative culture, to come in with a very strict, mandated, you will do this type travel policy will jar with that culture and then is less likely to be successful.
0: I remember, Richard, you alluded to our days selling at BA. And even in those days, you would match your business attire potentially with a customer. So you wouldn't think not to wear a tie with a a bank, for example, or or a legal firm. Those things seem to be changing even now.
2: Yes, I mean, you you and I as highly sartorial dressers will lament the departure (laughs) of the suit. And in fact, probably have wardrobes full of them. But we have to now accept that actually the days of the suit probably are are gone. Uh, To be honest with you, I think I, I can't think of a culture now where suits are the default. I wore a suit a lot of times in China to respect my contacts when I used to visit you know, government departments. But nowadays it seems very much th- the case that uh, the suit is history um, and we're all in slacks and uh, open neck shirts. Uh, in in s-
0: your case, slippers today.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> and a rather fetching silk bathrobe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, thinking about corporate culture, have you got some examples, Joe, of some companies you've worked with that have got particularly strong cultures that are quite defined
1: yeah so within strong culture the picture I get in my mind when you talk about strong culture is a very sort of mandated culture but that's not necessarily the case because there are some companies that are much more liberal in the way that they approach life which is also a strong culture in itself so really for me that the travel program and anything that you're doing within that organization needs to reflect it so the most important thing is that your strategy for engagement as a travel manager or a travel buyer within an organization needs to reflect that culture. If you're in a collaborative environment, you need to pick your words very carefully within a travel policy. If each business unit runs like its own P&L and you you have very little control or structure over what you can do, you need to be very careful in terms of how you approach that as opposed to um, a more mandated directive culture where you can be a lot clearer. So really, the company culture question is about how can you get what you need in the most effective way. So for a travel buyer, their goal is to deliver an optimized travel program where they're leveraging as much as they can, they get good compliance, and they have happy travelers. So the shortest way to get from A to B is going to be to work within that culture.
2: I think also that Cultures can change in a company quite quickly, depending on who's that's leading. That's True. It. So the leadership can set a very different culture, and I think anybody doing business with a company, whether um, uh, travel supplier, uh, has to understand exactly where the CEO is coming from and how that culture can change quite quickly. Um, so it's there's a sort of a broad, ongoing company culture, but it can change dramatically on, on the style of the leadership.
1: Actually, that's a really good point, and I have worked with clients over the years. You know, because we tend to have relationships like you do, which you know last a long time. And And the transition of one CEO to another can make a big impact. And, you know, we've seen customers where they've gone from a relatively open, collaborative, empowering culture to a much more directive one. And the the key is to keep the policy alive with that. Um, Or you have organizations that go through transformation. Transformation is always a, a, a big driver for policy change. It's funny.
0: It's almost the first thing every CEO does, isn't it, is lay out what the values of this business are going to be. Um, and often you can find those in places like their website, that's useful, but yeah. culture generally should be the, the value, should be the touch points there.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, travel is very often one of those categories that goes first when those transformations are being driven. Because in an organisation that travels a lot, you know, the T&E line is usually the third or fourth largest one on the PL and And the ones that come above it, overhead, salaries, that kind of thing. Um, you know, they have less flexibility over, whereas they can make some fairly dramatic shifts within the travel policy that can deliver some fairly significant savings.
0: Richard, I understand you now live in rural Sussex. Have you adjusted to that culture?
2: Oh, Scott, it's only Sussex. <laughs> I haven't retired to the Masai Mara. Um, but yes, I having lived in London for a long time, I now spend a lot of my time in Sussex, and um, the natives are very friendly, um, and um, I find it very relaxing at this time of the year. it's heaven. Yes, absolutely. My care home is beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad you settled well.
0: So if listeners want to find out more on the subject of cultural intelligence, where where can they find out more, Joe, first?
1: There's lots of places where you can find information about understanding cultural differences. There's some great books out there. There's some really good resources. And, you know, of course, they can always feel free to contact either the lovely Mr. Tams or myself, Tailwind Advisory or Nina and Pinter. Oh,
2: thank you, Joe. (laughs) I would actually mention one particular book, which I think is a great introduction and a really easy read. And it's a book by uh, an author called Erin Mayer. And the book is called The Culture Map. And it's a great introduction. Uh, It's not highly technical. And it's very amusing. And as Joe said, I'm working with a company called Culture Me that provide a, a sort of web platform for people wanting to... To learn more about intercultural management and, and how cultures differ from one to another, so uh, there are a number of resources uh, that you can go to.
1: That's true, and that uh, the Culture Map is a great book, and it's full of anecdotal stories. and And whilst they're entertaining, and you know, there's a point behind each one of them that really helps people understand where the potential challenges could be. Another one is understanding cultural intelligence. That that's another great resource, another great book. So yeah.
0: You described that book as uh, not very technical and quite amusing. Such a apt description for 70. So many- it's a good read. So many of us.
2: It fits me. It was perfect for me.
0: <laughs> so Speaking of which, Richard, I got into lots of trouble at conference because I said that you're my favourite boss ever. There's no benefit in me saying that now. I can't get a great performance review by saying that. That's all done. But there were at least two others of my previous bosses in the room, which got me in some hot water. Ouch. So uh, that thing about leadership, you don't forget, do you, the people that you worked with? And actually, one of the things that I was thinking of when I said that was that Richard was the person who showed me that I wasn't the only person that wanted to have a life Staff as well as work <laughs> well. So I think that's really important, isn't it? Because you talk about the culture of leadership and how it can change with a department or a company. I um, think so. And, and
2: I One thing that transcends every culture is the... Willingness of people to laugh. And and humour, even if it's humour that originates from you getting stuff wrong and and getting cultures wrong, I think uh, it's very powerful. So, uh, uh, yes, that's always been my mantra. And it works in an intercultural environment as well. Well,
1: that's true, but there are some Mm. dangerous areas within (laughs) humour travelling well. So uh, one must be quite careful. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't always travel that well. Be careful out there. Be careful out
0: there. Okay, so to wrap up, you two both travel a great deal and wellness is such an important topic in business travel these days. What are the sort of things you do to try and stay well whilst you're on your travels?
2: This goes against every grain of, you know... In my body but i have actually learned not to drink on flights which is yeah. really boring but it does help i have to say remain hydrated and yeah i can't believe i've just said that but uh, scott's looking at me going is that you well you know those early flights to edinburgh richard in the morning you had to stop you know? oh, exactly <laughs> well, what was our record three bloody marys no i'm just joking <laughs> how about you joe
1: yeah, I think, I'd, I hate to say it, but I have to agree, you know, staying hydrated is really important. On a long-haul flight, it, it does make a big difference. Also, the ability to have space when you're traveling, especially on long-haul flights, can make a big difference to your ability to perform when you land on the other end. Stay hydrated, eat well, get sleep.
0: Thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. I'm going to round off with our final question to all of our guests, which is not meant to be morbid. It's more about the kind of legacy that you would like to leave. So I'm going to ask you both, what would you like written on your headstone when it's all said and done? Joe first.
1: Here lies Joe, finally in one place. I
2: like
0: that.
2: Very nice. I would say here lies Richard Tams, never knowingly underworked. (laughs) Not sure what that means, but it sounds very good. I need to think that one through a little bit. I do too.
1: (laughs) I think it also taps into well being.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Well, look, both of you, thank you so much for joining us. Joe Lloyd and Richard Hams.